There's a church in our area that was started after we purchased this building in 1996. Today that church is many times larger than our assembly, and the reasons are many, and we're by no means in any competition. But I discovered recently that they have some unfair advantages. I was listening on the radio and heard the pastor of this church zealously inviting everyone under the sound of his voice to come to their church this next Sunday because a woman was going to speak who had been to heaven. She was going to tell all about her experience. I was kind of wondering how I could get out of church and go hear this message I had to work that day, but it would have been exciting to hear such a story about somebody who'd gone to heaven. In all seriousness, this church believed that they were gathering to hear a woman give an eyewitness account of the streets of gold. Well, how are you going to match a service like that? That's going to be pretty tough. But seriously, I don't know if we should really laugh or cry. Cry that anyone could even laugh at all. Because, and I mean it in this way, if God's people heard an eyewitness account of heaven, should they not be dramatically changed? Should it not be that someone who has really gone to heaven, who has heard its music and seen its glory and tasted its joy, should not that individual come back so changed as to turn the world upside down? I think so. And what is more, please know that in our small assembly these past two weeks, I think that we have been hearing from just such a man. Paul told the Galatians, that he had met with God. He told the Galatians that he had been trained by Christ in Arabia for three years. We find here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is where I got this gospel. I did not consult any man, he says, but I heard from Christ. And you can skim down through there and find verse 17 that he was in Arabia and three years later left. He heard from God. He met with Christ. But I'd like to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What is more in the experience of Paul? Verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, don't miss the point there. The man he knows about is himself, and that will be made clear here. Middle of verse 2, chapter 12, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. I've been in heaven. I can't explain how. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I don't know if it was a vision or reality, but I have been in heaven, and what I heard I don't even want to talk about. And what did God do to Paul? 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, I know this isn't the heart of the matter here in 2 Corinthians, but let me just say this, building off of that, in some undefined fashion, Paul visits heaven, and so powerful is the effect of that experience that God had to wound Paul with a physical malady to serve constant reminder that he was just a man and he's on earth. But oh, how this man turned the world upside down. Paul breathed heaven's air. And as he unfolds for the Corinthians the virtue of divine love, these words that we are reading are the genuine echo of heaven itself. Let me return to that theme at the close here, Lord willing. The close of our consideration now as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of this third major section in this great poem concerning divine love. 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, the Corinthians have been struggling with competitiveness, with self-centeredness, with pride in the assembly. A number of individuals in their congregation had been receiving words of divine revelation, which they were empowered to speak in foreign languages that they had never studied. Others were also receiving messages of divine revelation, but were not given the ability to communicate these messages in any particular language, and it resulted in self-promoting pride, competitiveness, envy, bickering, This was all tearing the Corinthian church apart. Now they have written to Paul and they're apparently seeking some advice and some guidance, particularly about how the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in the assembly is to operate. At chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul turns to that particular question and answers it in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But before he really hits the issue hard in chapter 14, he stops here in chapter 13 and deals with severing the very root of the this selfishness and pride and says, you must understand there's a greater way, 1231b. There's a greater way. There is the way of love. If they understand the virtue of love and follow the path of love, the root of their strife will be severed. And so we have looked, chapter 13 and verse 1, at the absolute necessity of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and there we should read again the miraculous gift of knowledge from God, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. The absolute necessity of love, verses 1 through 3. We've considered then secondly last week the characteristics of divine love. Verse 4, love is patient. That is, it puts up with people who hurt it. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. We've seen the absolute necessity of this virtue in our lives, and we have seen its characteristics. And as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, we come to this place and we fall down before the Lord in abject 
spiritual poverty. But we cry out for this love. And now, says Paul, we need to consider thirdly the superiority of this love, of this divine love. It's superiority. We notice in verse 8 that love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We need to spend a little time here in verse 8 because this is the major proposition of this third major section. Verse 8, love never fails. How do you understand that word? The Greek word does not speak of a moral failure or of some type of inherent weakness in love. But rather, the Greek word speaks of temporal failure. Love never fails. Love, in this this sense, love will never become obsolete. It will never run out. Maybe you've been hiking somewhere in a dry season in the summer and you found a waterfalls. You've been there sometime in the past, but in this dry summer, you find that the waterfall has dried up. It failed. That's the sense of this word. Love will never do that. doesn't matter how little rain we get one summer. Niagara Falls is going to keep on falling. And it's just going to keep on falling. It never fails. That's the picture of love that Paul gives for us here. Love will never fail. It will keep pumping through all eternity. John put it this way, God is love, and therefore love is eternal. It will never cease. Now, by way of contrast, Paul goes on to say that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will cease. We need to spend a little time here with the original language, if you'll bear with me for a bit. But the word cease that's connected to prophecy. Prophecies will cease. Notice down below the word will pass away. Those are the same Greek words. Prophecies will cease. Knowledge will pass away. The idea is that they will stop. Now that word is rendered in some translations with 17 different English words, so it's very hard to translate, but it means something here, I think, of the idea of rendered inoperative. Prophecy and words of knowledge from God will be rendered inoperative. There's a time when they will cease. Like that river flowing over that falls, they will dry up, they will fail. There's a time. And tongues, which is translated here, will be stilled. The Greek word is that they will cease of themselves. Something within themselves will bring them to an end. To what is Paul referring? Is he saying here there will be no languages in heaven? Is he saying here there will be no knowledge in heaven? No, obviously that's not his point. He's referring here to these miraculous gifts of knowledge. He's referring to the miraculous gifts of prophecy and tongues and a word of knowledge. What does Paul mean? Here's his proposition. Listen, you are so caught up with these miraculous gifts, the prophetic messages, so enamored with this gift of speaking in unknown languages, languages you've never studied, but revealing this word from God. You're so taken by hearing messages from God that give you immediate divine wisdom. But you must understand, Corinthians, these gifts are temporary. Unlike love, they will fail. They will become obsolete. They will be set aside. By contrast, love will endure forever. These miraculous gifts are granted for a time. While God was establishing the church and authenticating the apostolic message, but these gifts would run their course. Why will these gifts end? Why will they cease? Why will they become obsolete? Verse 9, for, and there's a connecting word which we could translate here, I believe, because, here's the reason why they will fail, they will run out. 
Love never fails. These prophecies will. Why? Verse 9, 4, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. In other words, prophecies and tongues and gifts of knowledge will not endure because they are partial. They are imperfect. By these revelatory gifts, God only communicates bits and pieces of the truth. They're partial. They give a helpful glimpse of reality, but they do not grant full disclosure and full comprehension. And so, verse 10, when the perfect comes, when perfection comes, in the sense of complete, mature, a perfect condition, when that condition comes, it renders imperfection obsolete. Maturity displaces immaturity. We see this in everyday life. I've had uh, situations in life growing up in my own home and working where I've been given a wheelbarrow that's this wimpy thing that can hardly hold anything. It's falling apart. It's got a tiny little wheel and you can't haul anything around in it. And then somebody buys one of the big old nasty wheelbarrows that can hold anything. What happens to that little wimpy wheelbarrow? It gets set in the garage somewhere or thrown out and it is forgotten. Maturity has displaced immaturity. Maybe you've had it with a pizza cutter, some plasticky little thing that wobbles around and doesn't work and somebody buys you the big old massive disc, right? And it cut through anything. You take that big pizza cutter and you go at it and you forget all about that little plastic one that sits down in the shelf somewhere or the drawer somewhere and gets thrown away someday. When maturity comes, the imperfect is set aside. Let me build here a little picture for you that we'll build off of later to illustrate this further. Let's say that you are granted a weekend vacation at a beach house situated on a private beach in Southern California. Sounds pretty good on a day like this, doesn't it? You fly to San Diego, and there in this whole deal is a rental car for you, and on the seat of that rental car is a map sealed, and it's a very secretive map because nobody really knows how to get to this beach house. That's why it's private. That's why it's on a private beach. Nobody's ever discovered it, and there's these specific roads that take you there. And that map becomes very important to you, doesn't it? You can't just roll down the window and ask the guy at the the gas station how to get to this place. You've got to follow the map. And so you pull out this map, it's very important to you, and it points you to various roads, and you find those various roads, and you're getting there closer and closer, and you go down this long, winding road that leads through a grove of palm trees, and you come into a clearing, and there it is in front of you. Your own private beach house for a whole week on the warm sands of Southern California, and there's a beautiful view of the ocean. Now, do you sit there in your car, kissing the map and studying the map and looking at the map for the rest of the week, saying, I'm so glad I have this map here. You don't even remember the map. You go running out into the beach and you hit the beach and you're there and you're just you basking in the beauty of this place. You're thankful for the map back in the car, but you've forgotten it. Reality has overcome the map. Now, the map gives a picture of reality. It's guiding there and it is reality in a sense, but maturity displaces immaturity. And you enjoy that setting. Now keep that situation in mind, for it renders the map obsolete. And I think that illustrates what Paul is saying to us throughout this section. But there is coming a day, says Paul, when tongues and prophecies and words of knowledge, just like that road map, will become obsolete. Perfection will displace imperfection. And Paul now illustrates his point at verse 11. 
When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. We understand what Paul is saying. The little boy plays blissfully for hours uh, with his toy cars. But when he becomes a young man and he earns his driver's license, he does not sit around the house playing with his toy cars, pretending to drive. He now has a real car and he can now drive that real car and off he goes and the toys are left behind. A young girl talks to imaginary friends for hours on her play telephone and then one day a real friend calls on the real phone and she gets the picture and the toy is left aside and the real thing takes its place. Or we could go on, children are impatient and easily frightened, but maturity yields the greater joys of endurance and courage. Now what's Paul saying? When you're a child, you do childish things, but when maturity comes, you set those things aside. They don't mean anything to you anymore, really. We have here the translation, he puts childish things behind him. That's actually the same Greek word that we found in verse 8 that was translated cease or pass away. So he's using the very same words in his illustration to bolster his point in verse 8. These things will cease just like the boy playing with his car, the girl playing on the play phone will cease, so tongues and prophecy and knowledge will cease when perfection comes. That time, says Paul, is not yet. It's not here yet, verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now... I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, I'm trying to emphasize here the temporal aspects of this verse. I think we have to catch them. There's the then, the now. And he's very clearly drawing our attention to time aspects. Now, or literally for now, this is an explanation of the illustration he's just made. Right now, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Corinthian mirrors were famous But mirrors as we know them were not invented until the 13th century. The Corinthian mirrors were a piece of metal that were polished very cleanly and therefore you could see your reflection. But obviously it was somewhat of a distorted, imperfect reflection. Now if you are in a romance somewhere, you might be quite thrilled to see your friend's reflection in such a mirror but i guarantee if you saw that reflection that came over your shoulder you'd turn around and look at them face to face wouldn't you it's a fuller realer uh picture it's 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 the reality that displaces the imperfection of the mirror now under the influence of prophecies and tongues and revelatory knowledge we do not see the whole picture We see God's truth as if reflected on metal, imprecisely. But a time is coming, verse 12, I know in part now, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Then I will know in the same way that someone looking right into my face knows me. I'm not going to know as if looking in a mirror. I'm going to know in reality and in truth. I'm not going to be looking down on a map that shows me a real place and real roads, but I'm going to be at the place. There's a time coming. So right now, our knowledge is partial. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But this coming day, all of these revelatory gifts will make obsolete. That day will make them obsolete. When that day comes, however, says Paul, and here's his point, love will remain. Love will remain. 
So Corinthians, I'm going to talk to you now about prophecy in the assembly. I'm going to talk to you now about tongues in the assembly. But I don't want you to get so worked up about these miraculous gifts. I'd rather that you focus on the way of love. Yes, you stand up in the assembly and exhort the church with a message of direct revelation from Almighty God in Swahili. And you've never thought about Swahili and don't even know how to spell it. What a wonderful thing that is. That's very impressive. And it's easy to become enamored with your experience. But it is far more important that you respond lovingly to that church member who irritates you. That's a bigger issue in God's eyes. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what will matter forever. All these gifts will dry up like a little waterfall that doesn't receive enough rain. They'll dry up. But love will pour out forever and ever and ever. Let's focus on what really matters. Let's focus on reality. All right, let's take an excursus. That's a rabbit trail. Let's stop. This is a passage of intense debate. Let's go into that a little bit, and we'll come back to the big issue. And let's not lose sight of the big issue, that it is the endurance of love forever and ever. But let's stop for a moment and ask this question. When will this perfect state replace the imperfection of the miraculous gifts? What does Paul have in his mind? When will this state come? First of all, this is a very difficult question because Paul does not define when then is in verse 12. Notice verse 12. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. He never says when the then is. That's what creates the tension and the debate. But I'm convinced that we must link the then in verse 12 with the when in verse 10. Okay, you see the when in verse 10? You might want to circle that. That goes with the then in verse 12. Now, I'd like to say that doesn't have to be, but I think we have to come to that. So let me read it this way, verse 10. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Let me start at verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, we prophesy partially, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now verse 12. Now we see in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. So the face to face encounter is the perfection that drives out the imperfection in verse 10. When the perfect comes, when perfection comes, or if you like, when the perfect thing comes, then, verse 12, we will see face to face. So what is he talking about? What does Paul mean when he says we will see face to face? A very common interpretation among conservatives is that he is referring here to the completion of the New Testament or to the coming maturity of the early church. Now, often that is described as two separate views, but they're really so closely related that I think we can just bring them down into one position because the maturity of the church includes the completion of the New Testament canon and the timing is almost identical. So for sake of argument, we'll just put those two together to some degree. The idea then in this view is that we are receiving these revelatory gifts only until we see more clearly in the completed canon of Scripture. Soon the New Testament will be complete. These revelations will be unnecessary. The apostolic church will be completely formed and all of this will be unneeded. 
And that's the perfection to which Paul refers. There's no doubt in my mind that that happened. And I know that's a debatable point, but I believe that it did. When the Bible was completed around 98 AD, these revelatory gifts lost their function in the early church. And that has been the overwhelming, predominant view of the greatest theologians in history up until the 20th century. However, there are some profound problems with this interpretation. That perfection in Paul's mind, seeing face to face, is the completed New Testament. Let me give you four reasons why I don't think that's really the best answer. And I'll admit that I used to think it was. So this is all a matter of development and growth. And uh, I haven't thought it for some years, but there was some time before when I did. Here's some reasons I don't think this works. Are you following me? If you're lost here a little bit, the perfect thing, the perfection of verse 10, what is it? I don't think it's the completion of the New Testament, and here's why. Number one, it is highly unlikely that Paul would picture the apostolic church as existing in a state of childish immaturity when he pictures the apostles and the prophets as forming the very bedrock of the church. And he does so in Ephesians chapter 2 before the canon is complete. On the prophets, on the apostles, the church is built. It seems unlikely that he would picture the church in that condition as an immature and childish church. Secondly, it is also doubtful that he would have seen the completion of the canon, that is the completion of the New Testament, as so dramatically changing his own knowledge of God's truth, having been tutored for three years by Christ in the Arabian desert, and having visited heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, two things that we've looked at here earlier. Would Paul say, I am childish and immature in my knowledge, but when John finishes that last period on the book of Revelation, then suddenly I will see face to face in perfection. Remember, this is a man who's been schooled by Jesus in the desert. My thinking is Paul had great and full knowledge and could have written much more if he'd have had time. He only got a chance to write generally when he was in prison. He could have said a lot more. It's, it seems unusual that he would refer to himself as in that case. Point number three, Paul assumes that he will personally see face to face someday. Does he not? We see in a mirror now, but then we shall see face to face. You see the problem. If this is a reference to the completion of the New Testament, we know historically that Paul did not live to see the completion of the New Testament. And he does not seem to give any indication here that there's any opportunity that he won't see this perfection come, this face-to-face situation. Paul has, I don't believe. Now, you could say that Jesus told him how the New Testament would be completed. That You, you couldn't prove that, but you could argue that. I don't personally think that Paul has any idea how long Revelation will continue in the New Testament. I don't believe that he has any idea that he's going to die before it's completed, nor does he have any idea that Revelation may be coming right at the very moment that Jesus comes back. I don't think that God has given to Paul, here's the date that the New Testament will be completed. Paul is just receiving a revelation and he writes it down. And other apostles are writing down Revelation. Is Paul saying here that there's a time coming when Scripture will be completed 
and that I will be alive at that time. We will see face to face. I don't think that's what he's saying. But here, number four, is I think a decisive problem with this view, and that is that never elsewhere do we find the phrase face to face as descriptive of the Bible or the maturity of the church or anything like that. Let's just think through the seven uses of face to face in the Old Testament, which is the Bible of this time. Seven times it is used in the Old Testament. Genesis 32.30, Jacob is wrestling with God and he says this, I have seen God face to face. Three times this phrase is used of Moses' unique face-to-face relationship with God in the outworking of which his face glowed. Remember that. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In Judges 6 and verse 22, Gideon saw the angel of the Lord face to face. Ezekiel 20.35, God warns Israel, Face to face I will execute judgment upon you. In each of the seven uses of face to face in the Old Testament, Every one of them speaks of a direct meeting with God. We should not expect the New Testament to change that meaning without explanation, and this phrase is found nowhere else in the New Testament except here. Now, if you're really careful about these things, it's translated this way three times in the New Testament, but two of those translations in the Greek is actually mouth-to-mouth. And it's just talking in both cases of the Apostle John meeting another individual personally. I will see you mouth to mouth. The point is, if you take all of those uses, even the two that are translated mouth to mouth, every use in the, in the entire Bible is referring about two people seeing each other face to face. So it seems very unlikely that Paul would change that meaning without any explanation and talk about Scripture completion being a face-to-face perfection. I know I'm boiling down a lot of other possibilities here, but let me boil down everything into one second option. I think you have to see it as the completion of Scripture, perhaps adding in there the maturity of the church with the ending of the apostolic age. Option number two is that we're talking here about a face-to-face meeting with God. There's all types of discussion as to what that meeting is, but obviously it's some type of consummation. It's in heaven. It's at death. It's at the second second coming of Christ. I'm not going to belabor all those nuances, but I do think this is the right understanding of the passage. And as I said, I've I've held for some time the first option, but I, I don't think it's holding up to the test of Scripture. And so I would suggest that what we have here in Paul's mind is a face-to-face meeting with God. This view does not demand, let me alleviate any concerns right at the front, but this view does not demand that miraculous revelatory gifts must continue until we see Christ face-to-face. Paul is just speaking here generally. I believe that the miraculous gifts were rendered obsolete by the completed canon. I don't have any problem with that position nor have the greatest theologians of history down until the 20th century had any problem with that notion. That when John completed his work, the miraculous gifts of divine revelation were no longer necessary and they were rendered inoperative and they ceased of themselves. But I think that the face-to-face experience to which Paul refers is a meeting with God. Let me quote from one great luminary, Jonathan Edwards, who brings both of these together in a very unique way. I found no one else that put it this way. 
But he said, The church in its beginning, before it was strongly established in the world, and before the canon of Scripture was completed, was in an imperfect state. A state, as it were, of childhood in comparison with what it was to become in its elder and latter ages, when it should have reached a state of manhood or of comparative earthly perfection. Yet... Edwards goes on to argue and admits that this immaturity continues until the church reaches its heavenly state. So primarily, Paul has in mind the believer's death and the church in heaven when the partial gives way to the perfect, when we see God face to face, all of this will be done away and unnecessary. Let me take you back to the beach house. Here's how it works for me. The map, in that analogy, the map are the miraculous revelatory gifts. Did the church need those gifts? They absolutely had to have the map to get where they were going, where God wanted them to go. They needed these words of knowledge. And Peter, just think of that word of knowledge, if we could use this by way of illustration. Peter knows that Ananias and Sapphira are lying about their gift to the church. He has a word of knowledge from God. She comes in. He doesn't even have to talk to her. And they both drop dead in their lie. It's a word of knowledge. There are tongues. We see those tongues used in Acts chapter 2 to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers in their language. No time for uh, missionary training schools and learning these languages. There's just a dissemination of this truth in a miraculous way as the church gets started. This is the road map. God is using this map, He's using these means to guide the church to the end where it needs to go, or to take the next step forward and to keep progressing down the road. But I think there's a time, as time progresses, where the map is not needed even before you get to the beach house and see it face to face. What is that? It's when you get on the road. Okay, the map says we take a right up here. We're on the right road, we can see it here. Where do you look then? You look up. You're on the road. And I think that could be illustration of where we are now today as a church. We don't need these miraculous revelatory gifts because we're on the road, and that road is Scripture itself. With the completion of the New Testament, we have all of the information that we need to have to live a life of righteousness and godliness. We don't need to look down at the map because we have the completed Scripture. The road itself now are the Scriptures, but we aren't there yet. And let's admit it, when we look in the Bible, we do see God face to face in one sense, but we do not see Him face to face in another sense. I don't see holding this Bible and living in this world as heaven itself. There's an awful lot I don't understand about this Bible. There's an awful lot about the reflection of God that we see here that is imprecise and incomplete. There are many questions that I have to ask God and much that I must learn to know Him better. There is an imprecision here. We're on the road. We see the road, but we're not at heaven yet. We're not at a face-to-face relationship with the Lord just yet. So have these revelatory gifts ended? I think there's no question that they have. But are we there yet in a face-to-face relationship with God? Not yet. And again, if Paul said that he was going to be in this face-to-face relationship, he was wrong because he didn't get there. He died before the canon was complete. 
I think what he's talking about is meeting God face to face. But let's get back now out of the debatable issues here. And I realize there's all kinds of concerns that swirl all about this. But let's get back to what Paul is saying and what really matters here. When we see Christ, all of the temporal, spiritual provisions of this world will be set aside for the face-to-face reality of God's presence. I don't know that that means that the Bible will be set aside. In fact, I would suspect quite the opposite that he will unveil to us what the Bible is actually saying in eternity, but it will be a face-to-face relationship with him. And you know what? When we get there, there's something that's going to meet us there on heaven's shores, and that is love. There won't be any tongues in heaven. There will be no need for them. There won't be any revelatory words of knowledge. There will be no need for them. There will be no prophecies in heaven, no need for them. They're all obsolete. They may be obsolete right now, I would argue that point, but be be that as it may in heaven, they are obviously unnecessary. But love is going to be necessary throughout all eternity. It is supreme. And so says Paul in verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith and hope will end? I don't think so. Because I think he could have said prophecies and tongues and words of knowledge and faith and hope will cease, but love will remain. He doesn't say that. He says now remains faith, hope, and love. He doesn't say that love alone will endure. He says that love is the greatest of these. I think that faith in God will continue throughout all eternity. And I think that hope in the future in eternity will continue as we keep looking into the future of eternal bliss. So he's not saying that faith and hope will end, but he is saying that love is the greatest even of faith and hope. I'm not sure I would have said that. Would you? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. That's what Revelation declares. Having left prophecy and tongues and revelatory knowledge, love will outstrip even faith and hope in heaven. Forever and ever in the courts of heaven, love will spring eternal. And so this chapter is really, I believe then, an echo of heaven itself. For if love will endure forever, then love will be the atmosphere of heaven. The miraculous gifts were important, but they will have no use in heaven. In like manner, denominations and theological systems and creeds and confessions and the like are useful to us now. In fact, in some occasions, we need to die for those confessions and creeds and practices and beliefs. But there's a time when it isn't going to matter if you're a Baptist. There's a time when your theological system is going to be nothing but rubble left behind on a cursed earth. We are going to see in that day God face to face. And we're going to all be corrected, let me say, at some places. We will see him as he is. And the immaturity of this world and its systems and its dividing lines will all vanish away. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that those dividing lines are not important now. We are in imperfection. We aren't at the beach house. We've got to look at the road map. And we've got to follow the right roads. But in heaven, this will all be done away. And heaven is then a realm of love, ruled by the God who is love and inhabited by people who are made holy, lovely, and who love perfectly, Ephesians 5. 
A splendid church without any spot or wrinkle will inhabit heaven. Eternal, pristine, perfect, boundless, infinite love flowing between the persons of the Trinity and overflowing toward all of the inhabitants of heaven and between the inhabitants of heaven and then rebounding back in full force to the triune God and love will reign forever and ever. Breathing the air of love, there will be no jealousy and no cynicism and no bitterness and selfishness, no unkindness or rivalry or hatred or depression or favoritism or envy or mistrust. It will all be left behind on this fallen world. Love will spring eternal and will flow with perfection between the inhabitants of that great kingdom forever and ever and ever without end. Why are our streets so messy today? Why are our streets paved with cement and asphalt and gravel and mud? And why do they get so dirty and messed up? Why do they crack and heave and form potholes and washouts and the like? Why? Because the people who walk those streets are fallen and dirty and wicked This vile world has been subjected to our moral depravity and it does nothing more than reflect our moral depravity. Remember that the next time your car hits a pothole. That pothole's there because you're here. That driveway's cracking and deteriorating, falling apart because you're here. This is our world. A world subjected to sin. But I want you to... Imagine with me for a few moments. There is a world to come. Perfected in heaven, freed from all sin, we will walk on streets of transparent gold. The reason that we will is because our feet will be righteous. And we have heard here from a man who's walked those streets, so to speak. A man who came back with the echo of the Spirit that rules in heaven, and he says, love is absolutely essential. It is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is heaven. It does not delight in evil. There's a rejoicing in heaven in the truth, always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering forever and ever and ever. May the echo of that home inspire our living in this fallen realm. And consider that anticipation of heaven resides most decidedly in the spirits of those who love most fervently. Unloving actions, unloving attitudes, unloving words quench the fire of heaven's hope in our souls and dull its beckoning call in our ears. Are you headed to heaven? On the authority of God's word, on the basis of your relationship with Jesus Christ crucified and risen, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are headed to this home? Private beach down here, in the middle of a Minnesota winter in Southern California, will be discarded like a plaything when we get to heaven. Like a filthy rag, it will be left on earth for heaven's portals. 
But if that's where you're headed, then hear the echo from that land. Hear the music of heaven's love and live a life of love as you are drawn to that land by faith and in hope and for the glory of the one who is love and who has put love as a deposit in our hearts as his people. Love one another with a holy love. This is where we're headed, and this is our business in this fallen world, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's bow for prayer and ask his help. Our Father, we again acknowledge before you that we fall very far short of this life of love to which you have called us. We find ourselves so naturally self-oriented, self-concerned, and love we find at times very difficult. I pray, dear God, that we would hear this echo of heaven today. and I pray that you would motivate us to live in its light and to live in its spirit, to love the unlovely, to love our enemies as we love ourselves, and to love you with all of our heart, so that love would flow from us because it is flowing into us from your throne. I pray for this revolutionary mindset to permeate our church. I pray that it would permeate our homes, that where there are words of bitterness and hatred and envy and strife and discord and self-centeredness, Lord, that the echoes of heaven would draw us away from this fallen world, that we would think as we walk here on dirty streets of the streets of gold, God, that you'd purify our hearts to rejoice, to be patient, to be kind, to be thoughtful, to be gentle, to be loving. Guide us, God, I pray, by this call from your throne. And we know that we have received, certainly, a strong word here today that calls into question our lives. And I pray, God, that we would be willing to confess our, our wrongs to you, and if need be, to one another, that we will learn to love. Guide us to this end. May we honor you as a church and as individuals. May we strive for heaven's shores. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit and your truth. And fill us, I pray, with this divine love for one another and for you, I pray. This is my cry for those who know you as Savior, for anyone who has not come to be your child, through saving faith in the work of Christ, I ask God that there would be a sense in their heart of the wonder of this love, that they'd reach out to it, and that they would receive this love from you, because such love does not come from within. It comes only from above. And I pray that they'd be born from above today, that you will draw and open eyes Bring to yourself anyone who knows you not as Savior, that they might enter this love and see it as it is epitomized on the cross of Christ. This is my prayer as we close and as we come before you, asking that you will continue to do a work in our hearts to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, whose face we see reflected, though somewhat imper imprecisely yet we see reflected very specifically in these verses, and we are thankful for them. Teach us, Lord, your truth through your word, and transform us into his likeness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.